Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Bakhair, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahnaz Aqani. Today, we speak with Ziba Mir Husseini about her latest book, Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam, published in 2022 with One World Publications. In this book, Ziba Mir Husseini interviews several Muslim scholars in different settings over the course of a decade. These folks are Abdullahi Ahmad Al-Naim, Amina Wadud, Asma Lamrabit, Khalid Abul Fadl, Mohsen Kadivar, and Sadiqay Basmaghi. Mir Husseini is a scholar of Islam, a filmmaker, an anthropologist, and an activist. She is a founding member of Musawa, Global Movement for Equality in Muslim Family Laws, and the convener of its knowledge-building initiative to rethink the notion of male authority in Muslim family laws. Currently, she is a professorial research associate at the Center for Islamic and Middle Eastern Law at SOAS, University of London. Her other books include Marriage on Trial, a study of Islamic family law in Iran and Morocco, published in 1993 and 2002, and Islam and Gender, the Religious Debate in Contemporary Iran, published in 1999. She is also co-editor of Men in Charge, with a question mark, Rethinking Authority in Muslim Legal Tradition, uh, published in 2015, and co-director of two award-winning feature-length documentary films on contemporary issues in Iran. Divorce Iranian Style from 1998 and Runaway from 2001. Ziba and the six other scholars that she speaks with are contemporary influential scholars of Islam who have been working for decades on gender and social justice issues from an Islamic perspective using Islamic sources and in most cases working with Islamic institutions like seminaries in Muslim-majority countries. As the title of the book suggests, it describes these scholars' journey journeys toward gender equality. Some of the themes covered in the book are these scholars' opinions on the role of Muslim institutions in bringing gender justice in Muslim societies, that of the meaning and role of the Qur'an, their approaches to sharia and fiqh, and so on. In our conversation today, I talk with Ziba about each of the scholars covered in the book, some of the main issues and themes that arise in their journeys toward gender justice in Islam, sharia and fiqh, and in particular about the social construction of sharia, about maintaining hope and faith in working toward gender justice, about experience as a source of theological knowledge, the consequences of these scholars' works on their lives, the future of Islamic feminism, the work of Musawa, and so many other topics. Without further ado, here is Ziba Mir Husseini on her book, Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam. Hi Ziba, thank you so, so much for joining me today to talk about your wonderful new book, uh, journeys toward gender equality in Islam, in which you survey or in which you have conversations with several um, very important scholars of our time that I find very hopeful uh, and also distressing at times, given the kinds of uh, challenges that some of the scholars face. But thank you for the book. And I'm so glad that it exists. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk about it. 
Absolutely. Before we get to the content of the book, we like for our uh, listeners to hear about who you are and the kind of work that you do so that in case somebody's not familiar with you, I can get to know you a little bit better. So can you tell us about who you are? And as a question that you ask your uh, interlocutors here, talk about your intellectual journey with us. Yes, my intellectual journey is very much tied to the Iranian revolution in 1979 which was an absolute, um, I think it was one of the most important events, at least in many people's life, in my life, which really formed both my personal and intellectual life. And I did my PhD in anthropology, social anthropology. And, uh, and by the time I finished, which was 1980, um, it became history because I worked in four villages in Iran and things had changed so much. And then I became interested in uh, Islamic uh, law. And it's also, as I say in the book, it is a personal um, matter for me as well, because uh, after the Iranian revolution, family laws were changed and women lost all the legal rights that they had for child custody and divorce and all this sort of thing. And after the revolution, I also came to experience a different face of my faith, Islam. So it all came as an absolute shock and <laughs> and also painful because I tried to understand understand what is happening. And when my ma- previous marriage broke down, I realized that I have no right to divorce. And it was then that I started studying fiqh, and that started in 1984. And since then, you know, I've been really fascinated by Islamic jurisprudence. And uh, my work has been somehow like a legal anthropologist. And I've been working on Muslim family laws. In 1980s, I did field work in Iran and Morocco. And the main questions that I asked at the time for me were, what does it mean to be married and divorced under Islamic law? Where is the place of sacred in the law? And it's basically about understanding marriage and divorce. And what I learned was that by the time that a marriage breaks down, a marriage breaks down, it is like any other human relationship anywhere. And so everything that is sacred just evaporates. And women are really treated as a second class citizens. And uh, then in 1990s, um, I became interested in construction of gender in Islamic legal tradition. And basically, when we say legal tradition, we are talking about Islamic rulings. And I did field work in Rome, which is a center of religious learning in Iran. And uh, it resulted, the first one resulted in my first book, which is Marriage on Trial a comparative study of family law in Iran and uh, Morocco. And the second one is Islam and gender, contemporary debates with the ulama in Iran. And what I did for the second field work was basically I tried to understand how these ideas of gender come about, because certainly they do not come from text itself. They are not divine. They are humanly, uh, human construction. And they're constructed by men, by ulama. And so it was basically conversations with them, with the ulama. And I also started studying fiqh in 1990s with a cleric, and he introduced me to Qom. And that was the result of my second book. And uh, then in 90, while I was writing this book, I also became involved in making Divorce Iranian Style, which is a documentary inspired by my first book. And I work with Kim Longinato, who is a fantastic documentary maker. And uh, doing uh, working with Kim and also going to the courts and talking to women and also the, being there 
uh, was really, really inspiring for me and also painful. And the film, as you know, was successful and uh, it opened different doors for me. And I think that also was the passage for me to go from scholarship to activism, but because I came to realize the impact of films. And, uh, and in, uh, in early 2000, I became involved uh, working with Sisters in Islam, which is the first women's group uh, that, uh, that came into um, existence that worked within Islamic and human rights framework. And I must say that after I finished my field working home, and while I was doing this field work, I was really, really becoming interested in what came to be called Islamic feminism, and which is a new consciousness, new way of knowing, and a new knowledge from within Islamic uh, framework. And um, uh, working with Zaina Anwar in Sisters in Islam, uh, led to the creation of Mosava, and I'm one of uh, a founding member of Mosava. And uh, I, I would say since 2009, uh, when I started this book, um, it's it's my work really intensely been um, involved, or I I see it as a contribution to the creation of feminist knowledge from within Islamic framework. So that was a long <laughs> no, that's, way of introducing myself. That's wonderful. I, I, was, I was just telling you, I am in complete awe of your work, of your journey. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading um, the chapter in which you talk about your own journey. And I've, I've assigned your books in my classes. I have always, always loved and appreciated your commitment. And I, and I find it so inspiring that you insist on working from within the Islamic tradition. You, your insistence on the difference between fiqh and sharia, which I think you may have been the first person to point that out in a way that I understood. And I found that so incredibly liberating. And I'm always surprised that people don't know that. All of that to say, I am a huge fan of yours. I'm so grateful for your work. And I'm so grateful that, you, you. And that you're doing the, these, the, the activism, the, the scholarship. It is bearing results. And I want you to know that. And people are reading it and people are appreciating it. So thank you. Th thank you. Thank you. I, uh, this is really heartening to hear. Uh, you know, the um, distinction between fiqh and uh, sharia. When I did field work in Iran and Morocco in 1990s, and in my first book, Marriage and Trial, I do not make that distinction. I have a footnote that I say that uh, what because what I did in that book was not focusing neither on fair, neither on um, legislation, but on women's strategy and the court cases. And both the judges and everybody who came to the court were talking about the Sharia, Sharia law, and nobody talked about fair. So I, I note this in the foot, uh, footnote. But in 1990s, when I started my conversation and debates with the ulama in Iran, I realized without this distinction, there is no way to have a conversation. Because um, it is important to separate the legal from the sacred. Separate the legal from the interpretations of the sacred. And um, I think this is how, the fieldwork really in Rome uh, taught me the importance of this. And the very fact that the distinction between the two are completely distorted. When people talk about it, and also um, when some scholars write about it as well. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I think it is an important distinction. And because why? Because it gives us a language and also, it gives us a way of challenging from within. And uh, without this instinction, it is almost impossible. That is why I think mm -hmm. people are uncomfortable with it. 
Yeah. The folks that you're talking with, I, I, some of them are, well, uh, one of them is new to me, but the others I'm so glad are, their voices are being uplifted. Cause I also think that Mohsen is very underrated in the American uh, Islam context. So that was really yeah. wonderful. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant. And, and he's one of the few that is working on usul or fiqh, yes. on the methodology. Mm-hmm. And, and it, 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 his work is absolutely crucial. And as you see in his chapter, his journey is so important. You know, the way that he started, he started, he was a student at Shiraz University at the time of revolution. Then the, when the universities closed, he decided to, and, and also he was infatuated with Islam and with the ulama and with the science. So he moved, he moved from uh, mechanical engineering to seminary. Yes. And, and the way that he developed. And, and you know, one, one thing that I wanted to do in this book that I hope uh, it will come across and you should tell me is that to show that uh, how we come to know what we know, especially how we come to know what we know about Islam, because it is like a journey and our experience is as important part of that journey. So experience is a source of knowledge, is a I see it as a source of theological knowledge because it who we are and how we evolve also uh, impacts our relationship with divine. And also it impacts our relationship with the notions that are so central to Islam, justice, fairness, the human dignity. And all this, and um, and many, as you see, uh, both uh, Mohsen Kadibar, you know, started as a total believer in Islamic Republic, and then gradually he evolved. Now, I wouldn't say he evolved; he came to a different understanding. And what he did before was so important because he has such an important grounding in Islamic uh, traditional fiqh. And that is what enables him to build on it. And also he and almost all the people that I talk to, uh, apart from, uh, uh, I would say, Asma Lam Rabbit, uh, they have religious learning. But Asma Lam Rabbit, her, her approach to religion came with spirituality. It didn't come from law. So it came from a secular part to uh, Islamic feminism. So they have different journeys. And we also disagree on certain things, which I love that because it's so important. I think disagreement is the source of um, uh, the source of moving, moving ahead and progressing. Because if you agree with, with each other, you know, uh, all the time, nothing will come new. It's a very creative process. And, uh, but there are certain premises that we all agree. And I think these premises are very important. And I see them as the benchmarks for construction of an egalitarian gender relationship with an Islamic framework. One of the one of the things that I found so inspiring in their in, in these conversations was the each of their commitments to Islam, right? This idea uh, to mm-hmm. God. God is at the center of their um, of their beliefs, of their as as they change their views and as their opinions develop with time. God and Islam remain the central points in their uh, in, in their beliefs and and we can see also as I uh, forget who I think it was Khalid Abul Fadl um, in the chapter with him uh, when he's talking about his journey and how Yusuf Al-Qaradawi for example you know these folks become more corrupted or they're they end up taking different positions uh, because they get paid a lot by Saudi, the Saudi government yes, yeah. <laughs> example right but yeah. the, the ethical commitment Yes, yes, yes. And it's something, and Fak was, um, you know, Fak is absolutely sophisticated um, oh, yes. Islamic uh, law. And it's one of the more sophisticated. But what happened, I think, a lot to do with the, uh, but, uh, 
with the legacy of colonialism, with the experience, uh, Muslims experience of colonialism and also the decline and more than anything, the authoritarianism that closed the door to asking questions, the door to challenging. And so with authoritarianism within any system, uh, decline is bound to happen. And, and so what we have as a fiqh is really, to me, uh, belongs to at least 200 years ago. And, and it has not evolved. And it needs to evolve. No, but the, the centers of religious learning are so resistant. And this comes across in chapter with um, Esma Lambrobit. Yes. Yes. And one of the conversations that I have with, um, or disagreements that I had with Abdullahi Al Naim was uh, the importance for me to work with the centers of religious learning, with the traditional, those who work within a traditional framework, and with the clerics as well. And he was saying no. There is no way that you can work because, you know, they have vested interests and also they have no room for uh, uh, ideas, uh, new ideas. They don't allow challenge. And at that time, you know, he was the first person with whom I had the conversation in 2000, September 2009. Then in chapter with um, Asma Lambrabit, we see that Asma Lambrabit tried so hard. She is the first woman who is the director of the first women's studies in Rabat and Muhammadiyya, which is the biggest network of ulama in Morocco. But at the end of it, after many years, she is forced to resign. And she resigned basically over the dispute, over one thing that she said, that there is no discrimination in the Quran, not the t discrimination. The Quran gives equal rights to men and women in terms of inheritance. And gender equality in inheritance is Quranic. And they just wanted her to take it back. And that was the ulama wanted her to take it back. And she didn't. So she had to resign. That was heartbreaking for me. Was it um, who was the, the person that she'd been working with and who seemed to have been supporting her all this time? Was it Abadi? Yes, yeah, yes, Dr. Abadi. Dr. Abadi was helping. I mean, he was so supportive all of that time. And then in that one moment when he's like, you need to take it back because this is what the newspapers are saying. And she's like, I'm not, I'm not going to take it back. The, the, the headlines were sensationalized and, and that wasn't fair, but she was like, I'm not taking the content back. And then she had to resign. And then the, the language they used for when she was replaced, right? Somebody who loves our tradition and Sharia. And there, there's this insistence coming from the ulama, from these religious institutions, that nope, justice is not inherent to Islam, right? Gender justice is not an Islamic ideal. And that is disturbing to me and hopeless. Yes, but you can understand why Dr. Ebadi had to give in because, you know, all these ulama from all over Morocco came together and said that we can't have her there. And his compromise was for her to take it back. But for her to take back that there is no gender equality in the Quran when it comes to inheritance was really going against her belief. See, that, that was fine. I mean, it, like, I understand the political pressure on him to, to you know, for her to, to resign. But then the language of something like, you know, the, uh, when, she was, when she was replaced with yes. someone else, that I just found so problematic because the assumption, the idea being, oh, she doesn't love our tradition or she doesn't love Islam or she doesn't love Sharia. I thought that was uh, a betrayal. Yes, but I, at the same time, I also see that, um, you know, that language, in Asma Lamrab, for Asma Lamrab, for her successor, was the language that we have won. The traditionalists have won. So perhaps, or not perhaps, definitely they won a battle, but definitely not the war. <laughs> I see this really as stages because with everything, uh, you know what um, Asma Lamrab did, the way that she stood up and in, uh, not denied her faith. Because I don't see any 
clear distinction between secular and religious spaces. Right. They are very much interconnect, interconnected. Mm -hmm. And what she did, actually, the secularist feminists who were so much opposing her, realized that she's like them. She believes in equality. And somehow, you know, change the balance. And I think it is important. It is important what uh, I, I always try to, go, uh, to look at the uh, bright side. Because for me, hope is important. Hope is like faith. And I, I really cannot afford to lose um, uh, hope. And I, I feel that both hope and faith are the things that we choose. It's a commitment that we make. So, yes, it is despairing, and I despair many times, but then I continue. But I, I feel that I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my journey as well on this, because uh, there are the young generation coming, and there are people like you. And believe me, in 1990s, early 1990s, uh, when I started writing about Islamic feminism, it was seen as a contradiction in terms. And nobody really accepted it. And I remember that in 1990s, I used, after, you know, uh, getting to know about Sister in Islam and also women in Iran, especially Zanon magazine, mm -hmm. I was really enthusiastic. I, w I wanted their voices, their way of thinking to be heard. And I used to write articles and submit it to journals. I tell you, all of them were rejected. And why? Because, I, I, because, you know, those who read your article are your peers. And they can pick a hole in your argument or um, in the fact or whatever and, and reject it. And at the same time, at that time, the feminist journals, uh, they, ha they had no specialists. You know, the Islamic feminism as a discourse did not exist. And these days, it is, it is actually more difficult to reject articles like that because there is a critical mass, there is a literature there. Oh, let's talk about Amina Wadud. I, I mean, yes. yeah, what, how, did, how did that conversation go? And I um, would love to hear more about anything you can share with us from her discussion with you for our listeners. Yes, I, I met Amina Wadud. I Of course, I had read her work and admired her. And I met her first time in 2000 in Malaysia when Sisters and Islam had a meeting. And as you know, she is one of the founding members of Sisters and Islam. And she went to Malaysia in 1988 and mm, for four years. So... At the time, when we, we used to have a lot of conversation about uh, feminism. Because if you remember at the beginning, of, at the preface of her book, um, it's, uh, Woman, Woman and Quran, she basically says that she is not a feminist. She's been called feminist. And given that identity, she is both pro-faith and pro-feminism. And I really could see what she was doing was so feminist, so why she didn't want that identity? So we used to have this conversation quite a lot in early 2000 and all this. And um, I find her work extraordinarily important. And I think she's one of the, um, she's one of the best uh, theologian that we have in Islam um, and her relationship to God and her, the way that she, really breaking the ground and breaking taboos are very important. And I see her act as doing the prayer, public prayer in um, New York, really, really as breaking a taboo. And that is important because it is actually talking about the presence of women in the ritual space as a leader, as a leader of the prayer, or as an imam. And uh, the reaction to it, uh, and as you, you see, you know, the way that the prayer, it, it took her many years because the first um, khutbah that she did was in South Africa, 12 years earlier. It took her 
12 years to accept to do this prayer because she wanted to be clear with herself that is she doing it for her ego or is this doing it for uh, her faith or whatever. But when she decided she was clear, but those who were organizing it, they had their own agenda and you can see this. And um, Amina Badud, um, of course, as you will, uh, you know that she was really, really hurt by that reaction. And it is very hurtful and still continuing, but she had also good support. And I think she did a very important work and as you see in the book, what really is interesting that when Musawa was born at the launch of Musawa, it was there and then that she felt that she belonged to Islamic feminism because she felt there is a community. And you can understand as an, an African Muslim not living under Islamic law, and also her, um, uh, her Islam, her understanding on Islam is quite different from some of the American Muslims. Yeah. Uh, very progressive, very different. I, I don't like to use the word progressive. Very different, very spiritual, and mm-hmm. also very egalitarian. There's a, when she's talking about her experience in Egypt at uh, in University of Cairo, where she's, she's meeting with um, scholars to read the Quran. And at the moment when she realizes, whoa, how does, how does meaning making work? Where did you, how do you know this stuff? I, which I just thought was so powerful. I'm going to read that where she says, yes. um, when we read the verse in the Quran that said, do not force your girls, meaning slave girls against their will. He told me that it meant don't put them into prostitution, but you can have as much sex with them as you want because they belong to you. I said, what? Not just not just what, but how do you come to know that conclusion when the words just say don't force them if they don't want? Uh, I don't understand how it means you can do what, what you want. Isn't that forced to? And I just I find that moment so powerful because this is exactly these are the kinds of questions we should always be asking. How do we find how do, how do we know? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes and that is the realization that she had at that very moment Mm -hmm. and 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 many of us have these realizations you know a certain moment that we realize why who says this exactly Let's talk about the the person that I um said I had never heard of Sadega Vasmagi so she's, I mean, she was brand new to me. I, her experiences in, you know, in, in working in these religious institutions and learning in these institutions. And when she talks about how the challenges and the, the kinds of impositions that the, and the sexism and all of that, the institutions are set up in a way that just discriminate against women. And then we don't end up learning in these institutions. And then that's held against her. Again, she's, she's another of the scholars that you talk with who is punished, penalized for her uh, views and her, her experiences and so on. Tell us a little bit about her, because uh, I imagine that a lot of our audiences might know, might not know her. How did you come, come to know her? What is, uh, what, what is she working on that our readers could, our listeners could uh, benefit from? Her work has not been much known in English because it was not translated. And there is also, this is another barrier. You know, there is so much good work in Arabic, in Persian, in uh, um, 
in Urdu, in so many other languages which are not really translated. So the work of translation is very, to me, is very much important. Only one of her books was uh, translated. So I came to know about her in 2009, and uh, she published her second book, which is uh, basically um, about the capacity of fiqh and whether the fiqh should rule and uh, govern every aspect of our life, uh, was self-published. And when I read that book, I was really, really in awe because this is the first time that I have come across a woman in Iran who speaks in that language. Because the reformists in Iran are almost all men. And she's uh, the only one that has emerged and she's now recognized. And then I met her and she's such a brave person. And she comes from a traditional religious family. But she comes from a family that is not um, married to political Islam, does not want to politicize religion. So it is a very strong yearning in her to understand God. And um, when she is 14, she goes and buys books, <coughs> buy Quran, and buys a copy of the Quran and also natural Balaqa which are uh, Imam Ali's book, and tries to understand. Then the revolution, and she's a bright student, and everybody expects her to do architecture. Another thing, she decides to go to religious studies. And uh, universities are closed in 1979, uh, 70, um, no, 1980, and then she goes to a seminary. And the way that she talks about the restriction in those seminaries, you know, it is just, you see that it's about killing the spirit. And I myself, I would say, I became an Islamic feminist when I was doing field work in Qom. Because I, I could see, you know, all the time I was wearing a chador, all the time, I, and I spent a lot of time in uh, women, women's spaces, female spaces, in the mosque, and also in um, the shrine. And I could see, you know, how women are mistreated and how they are really um, excluded from the religious spaces. And, uh, and at the time that I did field working, well, none of the women who were studying in seminaries were prepared to talk to me or were teaching there because they saw me as a foreign uh, influence because I was part of my education was in England. So I had no idea that somebody like her exists. And I was fascinated. And uh, then her latest book came, uh, which is called Bas Khaniya Shariat, Rethinking or Rereading uh, Shariat. And what she does in that book, I found it fascinating. She uses the methodology of Usul al Fiqh, the very methodology through which the ulama created all these rulings in order to challenge these rulings. And basically to show that none of the uh, rulings that come under the Ma'amilat can be justified on the basis of the Quran or on the basis of the Prophet's tradition. So it is an engagement and it's a conversation. So my first question to her was that, how come that you use a methodology that fiqh is built and then you want to challenge it? Because if you follow that methodology, you are bound to come to the same conclusions because it's a circular uh, system. And she said, no, the fact is that there were many who did not come to this con uh, con uh, conclusion conclusions that majority Fokaha came, but there were voices of minority and their voices become, did not become majority. So it is important that within that system, there is room for change. And I think what stops it is uh, the question of, or the fear of losing their fate and losing their power and 
influence. So it, it's, it's really very much tied to power and authority. That's what I think too. I think it is about losing power and authority. And, and again, that, th- that, that theme is so prominent throughout in, in, in these scholars' journeys and why they end up leaving the positions that they're in or why they move to a different country and so on. So um, also, I loved her idea of the prophet's sharia, right? The commitment for most of them to the difference between what is sharia, what is fiqh, and why, when, and how, and why we need to change our opinions. Uh, Mohsen Kadivars, for example, I loved his idea of Islami Rahmani, so compassionate yes. Islam, merciful Islam, also oh, beautiful when he has these four criteria of justice, um, justice, our reasonability, morality, and effectiveness. Uh, I think other scholars talk about the maqasid al-sharia, like we agree that we have to be, these are the principles of Islam. But somehow when it comes to gender, just gender injustice, that's also a principle of Islam and that doesn't get to change with time. And I'm, conveniently, one of the things that so many of these contemporary scholars are refusing to change their views on is gender, gender and sexual justice. And this is the question that I was asking in my dissertation research, right? Like, why are we not changing our positions on so many gender issues? And I mean, it's really ultimately about privilege and what's at stake in these, that the folks who are making these decisions are, uh, you know, are going to lose so much privilege. Yes, yes, yeah, it's privilege. And also what is worse is justifying it. And that justification is uh, that needs to be challenged because there is patriarchy. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and I think it has to do with their socializations. But one thing that I really, really... Uh, noticed in Iran because in Iran you know the clerics are in power in power they have been in power for over 40 years but um, they what uh, is happening you see that the society changing and evolving and moving and uh, and uh, and challenging them constantly and some of them change and some of them who do not change become more and more conservative. Why? Because that is the way of keeping the power. And in every system, you know, when authoritarianism comes, gender control over women and sexuality is the first step. Yeah, it's, it's, it's as if we define tradition and we connect traditions so um, fundamentally to women and to women's bodies and their sexuality that, you know, everything else can change. But at the moment that we allow women this right and that right, then the tradition is infiltrated and it is corrupted and polluted. And now it's no longer Islam and the essence of Islam is God. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners and viewers to know about this uh, book, this project, this research of yours? Yes, I, I think, you know, the one thing that I want to know is that, you know, there are two premises that are important for us to accept. And that the, the idea of gender as a social construction, you know, now we all accept. But also our understanding of Sharia is also a very much a social construction. And it is, these two are linked together. And I don't think that we can have an egalitarian understanding of Islam without addressing the question of uh, gender. And that is why th- there is resistance there. But the power is also there. Another thing that we didn't talk about was about Khaled Abu Fazl, about his, his journey. And also the role of, you know, he gets his ethics from his mother and his education, religious education from his mother, the role of his mother in his life as a, as a voice of conscious, even after he, she's dead, that, that voice is there, calling him Sheikh Khaled. I, I was so touched by that. Mm-hmm. And also the role of his wife, Grace, and the way that Grace um, is also enabling as well, because she is a convert to Islam and she converted to Islam before meeting Khaled Abul Fazl or even knowing about him. And she's also as a convert is so frustrated mm-hmm. with all this um, uh, ways that the converts are educated or introduced into Islam. 
and when she hears one of his lectures in 1999 or earlier, you know, that's the beginning of change and it's a partnership. So I didn't know these things about Khaled Abu Fazl. So when I went to his house for the interview and met um, his wife and all the dogs that they have, it really opened another side of it, which is yeah. really, really very human. And now I, they have this Usuli Foundation, which is an independent, and, and somehow he is recreating that ambience of learning that he had in Cairo, Halaqa. You know, when I, uh, when, I, when I first started my journey towards Islamic feminism and I was reading all of the, all of the scholarship, I came across his book, uh, Speaking in God's Name, and I read the chapter on women. And I, I loved it and I, I wrote to him and he's one of the first scholars who responded in such a humble and beautiful way. And since then, I have expressed disagreements with him publicly and with Grace publicly on, on some Facebook groups. And his, his willingness to still support me, I asked him for recommendation letters a couple of years ago for something and he graciously accepted. Um, and, and that comes through his conversations with you here, right? His, because again, for him, it's a commitment of a commitment to learning, commitment to growth, yes. commitment to Islam, to ethics. That is something about him that I really love. And then, yeah, we can, I guess, if we can end with um, this idea of the future, what you think the future might be like, how hopeful you are still, what message you would like to send out to the younger generation of Muslim feminists and activists who are working on these issues. Yeah, it's a time that it's difficult to be optimistic. <laughs> and it's really all over the world. It's not only in the Muslim, among the Muslims, but all over the world. I feel that we are uh, going through a um, profound tra transition. So the message, the message is that it is important, you know, to, to understand our tradition. And also, it, it is important to bring our tradition, Islam, in conversation with other traditions and with other branches of uh, knowledge. And I believe in conversation and gradual change. And uh, one thing that we didn't talk about is Musawa and also the journey to Musawa, because I, I feel that Musawa is very important in a way that it is the, one of the few organizations that bring scholarship and activism together and producing knowledge from within. And um, its birth, you know, its creation at a global level was, a, to me, is an important event. So I'm hopeful and I'm, what gives me hope is the young generation because they don't have the baggages that my generation had. The, uh, the dichotomy between religion and uh, human rights and feminism and secularism and also their commitment to justice and is, is really overwhelming and nice. One last question that we like to ask our um, authors is uh, what you're working on currently that we can look forward to in the near future. Um, I, in Mosavo, we have just uh, finished one phase of a project that we started in 2018. And it is called um, Ad and Ihsan in Muslim Marriages towards egalitarian ethics and laws. And it's, it's actually built on the work that we had done for challenging Kawama and Velaya, male authority over women. And uh, the focus is on marriage and the focus is on ethics as well. Ethics, um, because without egalitarian and just ethics, it is impossible to have just laws. And the dominant ethics that we have in Muslim legal tradition are still patriarchal. There are ethics that speak, do not speak to our values of the time and conception of justice and the realities on the ground. And uh, the first phase of this project was uh, working with the scholars and um, having conversation with them and having conversation 
among they having conversation among them and with activists. So the book uh, that is called um, uh, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriages Towards Egalitarian Ethics and Law is now completed and it is in print and it will come out in November. And what we have done is that simultaneously have this book, we are making it available in Arabic. So it is translated into Arabic and we have a wonderful, wonderful um, translator uh, because translating from English into Arabic and this concept is not easy. And her name is Randa, Dr. Randa Abu Bakr, who teaches at Cairo University. And she's the one who also translated Men in Charge into Arabic. And uh, both of them hopefully coming out in November. And that is something very exciting. And the second phase of the project, which is empirical, um, what, what we always call it empirical or ethnographic side of it because um, it's important for for us it was important to understand where what is the place of these two concepts of kawama and wilaya in everyday life of women so we focus on case histories and this time we want to be more ambitious and do solid comparative research in uh, at least four countries and also open the conversation for uh, change. And I myself want to work on marriage contracts because I have always worked on marriage contracts, but now I want to work on it. And uh, from a different, because uh, when I started working on it, uh, all this knowledge was not there. That I'm talking about 1980s. Uh, but now I, I really want to go back to it. Muslim women are looking for egalitarian uh, marriage contracts. And so I, I cannot wait for that one then. Please, please keep me informed and let me know how, let me know how that comes out. And I will. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ziva. This was wonderful. I, I hope that you enjoyed it as well. I know that my audience will definitely enjoy this conversation. And I'm grateful that you were able to talk with me on this. But thank you. And thank you for your generosity and your nice questions. Absolutely. Okay, so that was my conversation with Ziva Mir Husseini about her latest, Journeys Toward Gender Equality in Islam, which was published in 2022 with One World Publications. In case it wasn't clear from our discussion, I highly recommend the book. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Keep fighting the good fight. Salam. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.